Well, good morning once again, church. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Today we're in Romans chapter 12. We'll hit verses 10 through 21. And today's message is entitled, How to Love Like Jesus. If you've been with us, you know that the first eight chapters of Romans was all about the gospel. The good news that Jesus came and he lived a perfect life in our place. He died on the cross in our place so that any who would trust in him could be forgiven and saved and have eternal life. After those first eight chapters, Romans chapters 9 through 11, Paul talked about what about Israel? And we learned that God's not done with the nation of Israel. And in fact, there's a time in the future that is coming when there's going to be a great revival among the nation of Israel where the Israelites as a whole will finally confess Jesus as their Lord and their Savior. Then, as we got to Romans chapter 12, Paul began to explain how we as Christians should respond to all that God has done for us. Romans 12 is all about the practical application for us as followers of Jesus. Verses 1 and 2 told us that we need to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice for God continually surrendering our will to him and saying, Lord, not my will, but your will. To not be conformed to this world, but rather to renew our minds by reading the word and seeking him. Last week in Romans 12, 3 through 9, we were told how to use our gifts to serve God and to serve others. To love others with our actions, not just our words. We ended last week with Romans chapter 12, verse 9 which said, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. And with that, we now pick up in Romans 12, verses 10 through 16, we read how to love others. Now, verses 10 through 13 are one long run-on sentence. So we're going to read the whole thing, and then we'll go back and we'll break it up into smaller portions. So verse 10. Be kindly affectionate to one another, with brotherly love, in honor giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Now as we briefly look at this quickly, we see that all of this ties back into that verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. If someone were to ask, well, Paul, what does it mean to not love with hypocrisy? What does it mean to love with sincerity? Well, Paul might answer with these verses, 10 through 16 today. Paul starts again in verse 10 and he says, Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. In other words, be nice. Be nice to people and have good manners. Greet others with a smile on your face and introduce yourself to those you don't know. Ask people how they're doing and then listen to what they say. Paul continues verse 10 with, In honor, giving preference to one another. It means putting others before yourself. And here's one of my favorite practical ways to do this. Is find out what other people are interested in. What their hobbies are, what they care about. And then ask them about it. Ask them questions and genuinely care about what they care about. For example, some of the youth play basketball. Now, I played basketball for one year, 
in the third grade. I was so talented that my coach had special instructions just for me. He said, Jared, if you get the ball, don't dribble, don't shoot, just pass it to anybody else on your team. And I wasn't very good at that. Based on that picture, it looks like I'm trying to do a dude perfect from the other end of the court because I was a little trigger happy. So to say the least, basketball is not my thing. I'm not interested in basketball, but I care about the youth. And so I'll ask the youth, hey, tell me about your basketball game. I want to know how that went. How are you doing? Not because I care about basketball, but because I care about the youth. And so find out what other people care about. Find out what their interests are and then care about that because you care about them. It's making the conversation about others instead of uh, about ourselves. Choosing to love them. Paul continues in verse 11. And he says, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. In other words, don't let your love be lazy. Because if our love is lazy, then it's self-serving. And therefore, it's not real love. Real love is hard work. And so Paul adds the command, not lagging in diligence, but fervent in spirit. Rather than be lazy, Paul calls us to be passionate. And he ends verse 11 with serving the Lord. Your first fill in the blank on your note sheet. We cannot love God without also loving others. We cannot love God without also loving others. The Apostle John tells us in 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. Now, pause right there. We're going to continue in this passage, but this is the gospel that we just read, right? That God so loved us that He revealed his love to you and to me by sending Jesus to die for our sins so that whoever trusts in him will have eternal life. John continues in verse 10 and it says, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or the payment for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. A love that God did not wait for you and I to love Him. He didn't wait for us to make the first move, but He made the first move. He initiated that love for you and for me. While we were still sinners, He sent Jesus to be that payment for our sin. Therefore, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And we're called to love one another with the same type of sacrificial, initiating love that God has for us. So back to our text in Romans 12, Paul says in verse 12, Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer. We rejoice in hope by looking to heaven. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends out 70 of his disciples 
to all the cities and towns that he's about to go to. And he sends them out ahead. And they serve people and they preach the gospel. They pray for people and they get healed. And we read in Luke chapter 10, verse 17, it says, Then the seventy returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. It's amazing. But Jesus responds in verse 20, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Jesus gives us a great reminder for today. You see, our hope is not in our earthly accomplishments, but in the future heavenly expectation. That expectation of being with the Lord. For me, this means don't, don't take joy or don't rejoice if God speaks through me. God spoke through a donkey, right? He can use me if he can use a donkey. And so don't take pride or joy in how God uses us, but take pride and joy in the fact that he has saved us, that your name and my name is written in heaven, not because we've done anything to earn it, but because we've simply looked to our Lord and said, have mercy on me, save me, and he does. We rejoice in the fact that if you've trusted in Jesus, then neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's our hope, and that's a confident hope. Nothing can stand against us because we're with Jesus. So be encouraged in the assurance of our salvation. That's what we rejoice in. Back in verse 12, Paul started with saying, Rejoice in hope. And next he adds, Be patient in tribulation. I love how Peter also puts these two ideas of rejoicing in hope and being patient in tribulation. Peter puts them together as well. In 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So this section is all about our hope, the promise of eternal life, the inheritance that we have in heaven that's incorruptible, that can't be taken away from us. It won't grow old or fall apart or be taken. Our hope is sure. And then Peter continues, and he says in verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom, having not seen, you love. You see, this passage teaches us that trials and tribulation are, number one, temporary. Tribulation and trials are temporary. Peter describes this life as but a little while. 
no matter how hard life gets, it's but a short, fleeting moment compared to eternity. We also learn from this passage that tribulation and trials prove if our faith is genuine. They prove if our faith is genuine. You know, we can test a $100 bill by holding it up to the light, and we can see if there's the watermark there to see if it's really worth $100 or not. Well, tribulation and trials are like that light that shines on us. And if our faith is genuine, then that tribulation and trial is going to reveal that, yes, our faith is real. It's genuine. It's not a counterfeit. We really are holding on to the hope of Jesus, even though this situation is not what I hoped it would be, or even though this relationship didn't go the way I wanted it to, whatever it may be, the tribulation and trials reveal whether our, our faith is genuine or if our faith is exposed to be a counterfeit. Third, tribulation and trials also provide opportunities for more meaningful praise. They provide opportunities for more meaningful praise. You see, if we praise God while our life is blessed and our life is comfortable, our praise doesn't mean all that much. But if we praise God while our life is full of tribulation and full of suffering, our praise becomes a greater sacrifice. Our praise becomes a greater effort of our faith. Our praise means more than it would without the tribulation and trials. God receives more glory from you and I from our faith in the midst of trials than he does from our faith without trials. And so verse 12 again, Paul calls us to rejoice in hope, to be patient in tribulation, and to continue steadfastly in prayer. Continue steadfastly in prayer. I don't know about you, but this week as I just dwelled on that phrase, it really made prayer sound like hard work. Hard work. You know, prayer is simply talking to God. Prayer can be praising God for who He is. Prayer can be thanking God for what He has done, either for you personally or for all of us. Prayer can be asking God for earthly or spiritual needs. Or prayer can be repenting of our sin and our failure. But prayer should always be yielding to God's will. Yielding to His will like Jesus in the garden, praying, Lord, not my will, but Yours be done. Our prayer should be yielding to Him. And lastly, our prayer should always be ongoing. Our prayer should be ongoing. Prayer can be praising, thanking, asking, or repenting, but prayer should always be yielding and ongoing. And that's what Paul exhorts us here in Romans 12, 12 to continue steadfastly in prayer. Don't give up. Press on. Keep praying. And then pray some more. Paul finishes this run-on sentence of commands with verse 13. And he says, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. I first want to point out that the term saint does not refer to an elite group of super-Christians. It refers to every Christian. If you've trusted in Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, then He's washed away your sin. God looks at you and He says, you're holy. That's what it means to be a saint. You're holy. You're set apart. The blood of Jesus has paid for our sins. 
We're saints not because of our sacrifices for God, but because of His sacrifice for us. So Paul is not calling us to distribute to the needs of the special godly believers, but to distribute to the needs of all of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus speaks about Himself as the future King. In Matthew chapter 25, starting in verse 34, Jesus says, Then the King, talking about Himself, will say to those on His right hand, Come, you blessed of My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave Me food. I was thirsty, and you gave Me drink. I was a stranger, and you took Me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, Inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. You see, Jesus so identifies with his church, with his people, that when we love other believers by caring for their needs, Jesus takes it personally. He considers us to be meeting his needs. And to me, that's mind blowing. Notice, too, that the focus of these hospitable gifts is not on the quality of the gift, but the focus is on the quality of the selfless giving. You see, hospitality doesn't mean you have a big, clean house. It means you have a big, caring heart. It's not about how great our house is or how good it smells, but our heart, our willingness to share what we have. Hospitality is having a servant's heart to share what you have with others, regardless of whether you own a bunt pan or regardless of whether your tablecloth matches your napkins. It doesn't matter. If you're worried about whether your gift will make you look good or look bad, then you've got the wrong heart. That's not what hospitality is about. That's fear of man. Don't focus on the quality of what you have to offer. Focus on the needs of what your brothers and sisters need. And as we do that, as we seek to love others, we're loving God. And Jesus says, I take that personally. You're meeting my needs. Paul tells us next in verse 14, Paul says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. This echoes the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, where Jesus says, But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, and do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. We'll talk more about this idea a few verses later, but for now I want to point out that God is calling us to do the impossible. You see, in our own flesh, in our own strength, we cannot love our enemies. But when you trust in Jesus, He marks you as saved. Not only that, but God the Holy Spirit begins to dwell inside of you. He, the Holy Spirit, begins to change your heart, to change your desires. And He, the Holy Spirit, gives you 
the ability to love others, even to love our enemies. You see, God does all the work. He gets all the credit, but our job is to yield to him and say, Lord, I don't want to, but help me to want to. Lord, I don't think I can, but help me to do it. And rely on him, and he will do the impossible. Now, Paul says in verse 15, he says, Rejoice with those who rejoice, and weep with those who weep. This gives us another practical example of how can we love others? By being united through the good and the bad, through the thick and the thin. Rejoicing with others means that we celebrate their blessings. We celebrate with them without giving any room of the jealous thought that might be there that says, but Lord, what about me? Lord, I want that raise. Or Lord, I want that you fill in the blank. We cast those jealousies aside and say, Lord, thank you for blessing my brother or my sister. Weeping with those who weep is our call to empathy. There's a story in the Bible of a man named Job. Job was a wealthy man. He had lots of animals. He had ten kids. He was a blessed guy. And yet, to make a long story short, God allows Satan to attack Job's life. God allows Satan to take those blessings away from Job. And so in one day, in a horrible, tragic accident, all of his kids die. All of his animals are stolen or killed. Even Job's health is afflicted as his body breaks out in boils from head to toe. And he's suffering. And in the midst of Job's immense suffering, all these things he's dealing with, three friends come to comfort Job. We read in Job chapter 2, starting in verse 11, it says, Now when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity that had come upon him, each one came from his own place, Eliphaz the Tamanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. For they had made an appointment together to come and mourn with Job and to comfort him. And when they raised their eyes from afar and did not recognize him, they lifted their voices and wept. And each one tore his robe and sprinkled dust on his head towards heaven. It was a sign of their mourning with him. And so, verse 13, they sat down with him on the ground for seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his grief was great. What a great example for us to just sit with each other in our grief. They came and they sat with him. They wept with him. They didn't even need to speak. They just needed to be there to remind Job that he's not alone. But after those seven days and seven nights, they began to talk. Unfortunately, Job's three friends tried to understand why Job had suffered such a great loss. They assumed that it might be because Job had sinned against the Lord and he needed to repent. To which we read in Job 16, verses 1 and 2, Then Job answered and said, I have heard many such things. In other words, you can be quiet now. Miserable comforters are you all. Man, these friends started out as great role models, but they ended up miserable comforters. You see, when we weep with those who weep, 
Give them the gift of your presence. Show them they're not alone. You might even sit with them in silence. But don't give advice. Don't try to understand why they are suffering unless they ask you. And if they ask you, make sure you give them Scripture, not speculation. Back to Romans 12 and verse 16, Paul continues these practical examples of what we as Christians are supposed to be like. He says in verse 16, Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. One of my favorite features of the body of Christ, the church, is that Jesus puts us all on the same level. There are no inner circles in the body of Christ. Just because I'm a pastor doesn't make me special. I'm just a sinner saved by grace like we all are. The only one who is exalted is Jesus. He's the only one. We're all on the same level field. And yet, even though Jesus is God the Son, even though Jesus is eternal, even though Jesus is all-knowing and all-powerful, He didn't exalt Himself. We read in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5, It says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death even the death of the cross. I don't know why, but that just struck me even just now reading that verse, that verse 8, it says, and being found in appearance as a man, it says that he humbled himself. To me, it just makes me think of, you know, a time where I might put on an outfit or I put on a, a, a disguise and, you know, being found in appearance as whatever I might be dressing up as, my pride says, I don't usually dress like this. I'm not usually this weird, right? I want to defend myself and and puff myself up. But Jesus being found in appearance as a man, he didn't say, I'm really God, even though I looked like a man. But no, he humbled himself. And he became the servant of other men. And he laid down his life for you and for me. And it's amazing. And so Jesus is our perfect example of not to think highly of ourselves. You see, we're never above serving or associating with anybody else. In fact, Jesus even says that if you and I want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, then we need to become the servant of all. Because in God's kingdom, that's how we pursue greatness, by becoming a servant. Now as we look at verses 17 through 21, we read about how to love enemies. Paul says in verse 17, Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. The idea is not that we're trying to please man or look good in their eyes. We don't live for man's approval, but for God's approval. But God does command us to think about how we represent Him before God others. You see, the Bible calls you and I 
His ambassadors. If we repay evil for evil, then we're acting just like the world. We're acting like our flesh instead of acting in His Spirit. And so he continues in verse 18 and says, If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Paul does not say, be best friends with all men, but live peaceably. And Paul says, as much as depends on you. Reconciliation can only happen when both sides, when both parties seek it. You see, we're not called to be friends with everyone, but we are called to be friendly with everyone. This means instead of dwelling on the faults of others, we need to dwell on, okay, Lord, what else can I do for my part of living peaceably with them? For example, if you have a malicious coworker who just will not relent in attacking you, you don't have to pursue a relationship with them. You don't have to invite them over for dinner, but you do need to be a good, godly co-worker towards them, to love them. Paul continues in verse 19. He says, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. I think it's worth pointing out that Paul does not say, if somebody mistreats you, but he just assumes it's going to happen. We live in a fallen world. We're surrounded by sinners. When we go to the bathroom, we would look in the mirror. There's a sinner staring back at us. It's horrible. And so, not if somebody mistreats you, but when somebody mistreats you. And when that happens, God's command is to not retaliate. Why? Well, one reason is because God is the best judge. God's the best judge. In the end, after everything is said and done, God will judge all people. And He will judge them with all knowledge. He will judge them in perfect justice. He'll also judge them in perfect love. You might say, but you don't understand how much they hurt me. You're right. I don't. But God does. That's why He's the perfect judge. You might say, but what if that person repents and God forgives them? Praise the Lord. Because instead of receiving a temporary fleeting joy of revenge on that person, we receive the eternal joy of another brother or sister in Christ. And if you have something like that in your life where you've been so wronged and so hurt, and you can't imagine God forgiving that person, can I just challenge you to say, Lord, I can't, I don't want to, but Lord, I surrender my heart and I give you permission to change my heart. That's the first step of surrender and saying, Lord, no, but okay. And you're giving him permission to change your heart. Let's continue in verse 20. Paul says, Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Now, at first glance, we might think this verse means, be nice to your enemies, because in so doing, you will burn them alive. Some of you are like, man, I need to buy my boss coffee more often. This is great. 
Extra dark roast, right? But that's not what the verse means. You see, this is a great example of how in Scripture, we need to let Scripture interpret Scripture. Already in this passage, God has commanded us to live peaceably with all men, to not avenge ourselves, and to love others. None of these ideas fit with the idea of burning people alive with kindness. It just doesn't work. Therefore, verse 20 must mean something other than literally physically burning people with hot coals. Here's two possibilities. First, it may refer to helping a neighbor start a fire. You see, back in the day, without matches and such, if your fire goes out, it's a pain to get it started again. And so you might go to your neighbor's house, and they'll heap some burning coals from their fire in a container, and then you'd carry that on your head back to your home. And so it's an idea of blessing them, giving them what they need. Or another possibility is that coals of fire on their head may refer to the shame someone might feel for treating you badly while you repay them with good. As you love them despite their wicked deeds, you may cause them to burn with shame. And that's the idea. But either way, our command is clear. And Paul reiterates that command in verse 21. Paul says, Do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. Love others. Don't give in to the evil desires of your heart. And think about this. You and I are not overcome by evil if somebody gets the best of us. You and I are not overcome by evil if somebody even takes our life and puts us to death. That's not what he's talking about here. We are overcome by evil when we choose to retaliate in our flesh. Instead of saying, Lord, it's in your hands. You're the perfect judge. You take care of it. I'm just going to focus on what you've called me to do in loving others. When we're overcome with evil, we take that situation into our own hands. And we say, Lord, I need to, I need to act. I need to do this. And Paul says, you're being overcome by evil. You see, in every situation, God commands that we love We're called to love each other as the body of Christ. We're called to love our neighbor. And we're called to love our enemies. With all this talk of loving others, it's important we understand that love is not an emotion. It's not a feeling. It's a choice followed by an action. A choice followed by an action. You see, God doesn't command us to feel something for others. He doesn't command our hearts to to react a certain way towards others. He commands us to choose. I'm going to love this person, even though I don't like them. I'm going to love them. And by God's grace, He might even change your heart's feelings, but that's not what it's about. Because love is a choice. And so, He commands us to continually put the needs of others first and to serve them, serve others, in practical ways. I want to close with the story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. As Jesus was there praying with His disciples, on the very night of His arrest, on the eve of His crucifixion, one of His disciples, Judas, betrayed Jesus. We pick up the story in Matthew 26, starting in verse 47. It says, And while Jesus was still speaking, behold, 
Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came to the chief came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now his betrayer had given them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him. Immediately Judas went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. But Jesus said to him, Friend, why have you come? I love that even here in the midst of the worst betrayal and backstabbing in history, Jesus looks at Judas, knowing what he had already done in betraying him, knowing what Judas was currently doing, and Jesus calls him friend. Jesus didn't say it spitefully. Jesus didn't say it sarcastically. He said it sincerely. And I believe by adding the question, why have you come? Jesus was giving Judas one last chance to repent from what he was doing. One last chance to change his mind. You see, Jesus loved even Judas to the end. And Jesus loves you to the end. If you've trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then He calls you friend. He's washed away all of your sin. And now, because of what He has done, He calls you to love broken and sinful people like He does. If you've not yet trusted in Jesus, then He invites you to do so today. Because He's the only way for our sins to be paid for. He's the only way for us to escape eternal judgment in hell. And He invites you now to receive His love, His forgiveness, and His salvation. Let's pray. God, we thank You so much that Your love for us acted first. Lord, while we were still sinners, You came and You died for us. Lord, even while we were still sinners, You put Your truth in our life. Maybe it was by bringing a, a friend or a family member to show us who You are. Maybe it was by just getting us to church and, and learning about who You are. But God, Your Holy Spirit pursued us and softened our heart and revealed our need for a Savior. Revealed our need to get right with You. And Lord, I believe that there might be people today or listening online who are feeling Your Holy Spirit tug on their hearts right now and they recognize that they need to get right with You. And Lord, You offer Your hand and You say, Friend, why are You here? Are You ready to surrender? God, I thank You that You take us as we are. You don't tell us to get our life together and fix it up and then we can become a Christian. But no, Lord, You simply invite us and You say that we are broken, we are sinful, but You love us anyway. And You've already paid for our sin in full. And so, Lord, You invite whoever will trust in You, believe in You, will have eternal life. Thank You, Lord, for Your great love. And then, Lord, now that we're saved, you fill us with Your Spirit. You give us supernatural strength and ability to recognize the needs of others and to love them. 
not so that we might look good, not so that we can be that nice neighbor or that good friend, but Lord, give us the boldness to clarify, I'm not loving you because I'm good. I'm loving you because God is good. And He's given you the offer of salvation, just like He's given it to me. Lord, would you use our lives for your glory? Would you get all the credit and all the praise? And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and worship together. God gets all the glory. He's the one we focus on. The rest of us, we're all on the same level, same boat. God saved us by His grace and His mercy. Thank you guys so much for coming. We would love if you'd want to stay with us and enjoy the barbecue potluck. We'll start setting up and be ready to eat in about 20 minutes. But if you have to go, God bless. Thanks for coming. Otherwise, stay a while. Hang out and say hi to somebody else. Thanks.